Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Hey, it's Jake. Thanks for listening to Deep Cover. I'm starting to work now on season four, and I want to remind you that when you sign up for Pushkin Plus, you'll get access to binge drops of future seasons of Deep Cover and exclusive content from other Pushkin true crime hits like Death of an Artist, which just wrapped its first season, as well as Lost Hills, which is returning with their third season this June. And of course, don't miss early access to Revisionist History and The Happiness Lab, which are both publishing year-round for the first time in 2023. Check out pushkin.fm or the Apple Show page for more information. Earlier this month, I sat down for a live recorded conversation with my friend Emily Bazelon. She's a staff writer at the New York Times Magazine and a co-host of Slate's Political Gabfest. Emily's someone I go to when I'm thinking through a story. Actually, this often happens during runs that we take through East Rock Park in New Haven, where we both live. We kind of nerd out on these runs. We talk about the process of reporting and the ethical challenges that we both face when telling our stories. So we took that conversation from the streets of New Haven to Brooklyn, to a place called Littlefield. And just so you can picture it, it's a really great scene. There's a bar, a stage with these two orange leather chairs, microphones, this cool lighting display behind us. It was a fun night, and I'm excited to share that conversation with you. I'm here to talk about season three, my favorite season. Um, when Jake told me about the idea for this season on a run, I was immediately sold. I'm going to say this. I hope it's true. I think I said this is going to be the best season. You did, but I didn't know whether you were just, you know, trying to up my confidence. No, so. I was certain. Um, because it's just such a good story. So why don't we start, um, because I love these stories from you, um, with your telling us how you found this terrific story. Yeah, I mean, and also just say that I, years ago, an NPR producer said to me that a good NPR segment should always feel like one person talking to one other person. So in some ways, like this run we had, or we'll, when I'll pitch the idea, that's, that's how it starts. And so 
Emily and I live in New Haven. We both went to Yale. And I've always been kind of interested in people that fake their way into universities. And there was a guy who faked his way into Yale when I had been a student there. And I started poking around about maybe there's a story about someone who lived some kind of elaborate deception. And it turns out I found a piece in the Harvard Crimson about a woman named Esther Reed. And this was just kind of the tip of the iceberg. And so started going down that path of like where else did she go and who else was she and yeah that kind of opened the rabbit's hole and because this was years ago you had this kind of tantalizing lead but then there was this whole question of like who is this person now and would she talk to you and why would she ever talk to you I wrote this kind of generic letter saying who I was and then I got a call back from Esther um and this is a bit of a spoiler uh, if you haven't gotten through episode six, but she told me that, yes, I'm now, a, I'm, I go by Esther Matthews and I'm a professor of criminology at Gonzaga University. I was like, what? <laughs> and then I just was kind of really hooked on, all right, this is a really unusual woman. What is her story? So I flew out to Spokane where she lives I rented an Airbnb. We set up like a little studio in the living room of the Airbnb. And I just said, okay, like, let's start talking. Tell me your story. And this is kind of how it began. This is a story about a young woman who ran away from home. At least that's how it all started. I think people think that I had this master plan and I went out and did it. And like, you know, like it's not fun, right? You're constantly scared. You have no support. You have no one to talk to, which is part of the reason it got so carried away. Like, if I had just talked to somebody, they would have been like, this is crazy. Along the way, there were plenty of moments where she could have stopped running, but she didn't. Sort of like I got on a train track um, that was clearly the wrong train track, and like my train is running away and at some point you're not thinking crap how do I get off this train track you're just thinking crap how do I stop this train from like going off the rails you know I just kept making horrible decision after horrible decision after horrible decision just trying to keep the train from crashing and killing me at that point so there's a lot of reflection in Esther's voice, and you can tell that she's still wrestling with the emotions she has, and the memories are mixed in with how difficult an experience she had in this past that you're excavating with her. Why did she decide to talk to you? I think so at that point, and as I say in the podcast, she was Professor Esther Matthews. Almost no one at her university or in this town knew that she was also this kind of notorious uh, figure from the tabloids, Esther Reed, But she lived under this kind of specter of fear that someone was going to eventually put the dots together and that she felt if that was going to happen, why not do it on my own terms and just kind of be out in front of it, especially because she'd had such poor treatment in the media before. So I think there was kind of a timing thing where she said, I've been thinking about doing this. She knew that, um, she knew that, that John Campbell had visited her LinkedIn page. Um, she knew that people would sometimes kind of look, poke around. And so I think she just said, let's, let's do this. Um, we had one of these discussions and Emily, you know, we, we talk about this all the time on our runs where someone says they'll talk and then they say, Oh, this is off limits and that's off limits and you can't call them. And, and I was waiting for that. And she said, kind of got out in front of it. And she said, look, 
I know you're going to want to talk to other people. I'm not going to try to control who you talk to. Um, look, you got to do what you have to do. And that gave me some confidence that I was going to be dealing with someone who understood the process of what would be involved. And so I think the short answer is timing. So you mentioned John Campbell, who's the detective in this story. And you made, I think, kind of an unusual decision to really start the podcast with him. I mean, Esther's voice shows up early, but then you really move to his perspective. And he's not originally investigating Esther's disappearance. He's investigating the disappearance of another young woman, right? Yeah, he's investigating the disappearance of a woman named Brooke Henson, who disappeared from the small town of Traveler's Rest. And he wants to get to the bottom of this, but she has vanished. And he hasn't given up on the case, but he is, the, 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 the light is dimmed that he's going to get to the answer. And then whatever it is, six or seven years later, he gets a call from New York saying, I think I found your, your woman, Brooke Henson. She's a student at Columbia University. And of course, it's not really Brooke. It's Esther. But this le- leads him on this, this quest to pursue Esther. And I'll just say I wanted to talk to John. Uh, I called him up. Uh, he said, come on down and chat. And I really wasn't sure what to expect. When I retire, I can't wait to put this in a drawer. I mean, this is, this is a, uh, it's a thing I bang my elbow on all the time. <laughs> so it's not about carrying a gun. I carry a gun because we have to. I'd rather be like Andy Griffith and just be sheriff without a gun. And he's just, he's just charming in, in a way that I was. He's disarming. He laughs at himself. He's kind of goofy. And he's a good detective. And so I immediately sensed, oh, wow, this guy is going to be an important kind of character in the podcast. Why did he care so much about this case? I mean, he really gets preoccupied with it. I kind of want to use the word obsessed, although it's not super respectful, but he's just really intensely driven to work on this case. Is there not very much interesting crime to solve in Traveler's Rest? Well, well, funny you should say that. John, I asked John this question. He said, look, uh, Traveler's Rest is like, we call it the, the circle of wagons. It's a few miles across, and our job as constables is to push the, uh, the, the crime out of the city uh, and let the kind of lawless mountains, or what was once the lawless mountains, be the lawless mountains. You'd hear this roar of a truck would come in, and people would pile out, and they'd say, we're looking for the law, you know, and mountain justice had failed, and they had to come to, into town to find, <laughs> find some law enforcement. And so John was basically like, within the circle of wagons, within this town, he felt like that he was a custodian, someone who was really depended upon to keep the peace, and not a lot did happen. And then this young woman vanishes, and I think he feels personally responsible in some ways for getting to the bottom of this. And, and it, you could say he becomes obsessed, but I relate to that in a way. It's like... You, you start to get a little bit of a mystery and you're not going to rest until you get to it. And so he just takes it a lot further than most would. Right. And so he's trying to solve the mystery of Brooke Henson's disappearance. And Esther appears in his story in the end almost by accident because there are different aliases that she's grabbing hold of and Brooke is one of them, right? Yeah, so he... this The thing that's kind of remarkable about the story is he gets the call that... Brooke Henson is actually up in Columbia, right? And he doesn't really, it doesn't really make sense that she would vanish for seven years and then show up at the school. And he sends a police officer, the police officer talks to her, and he presents her with a series of questions that only Brooke would know. And she answers most of them successfully. 
And at that point, you know, you would think he just lets it go, but he, this is where his doggedness comes in. He says, no, I want DNA, um, which I think I say in the podcast was ballsy. And somehow the New York City cop agrees to it, and then she runs. So here's what I find fascinating about John. Like, on the one hand, it was kind of crazy of him to push for DNA. On the other hand, his hunch was right that it's possible that this person was so adept at being an imposter that she knew these kind of unknowable answers. And so that's the weird thing about being an obsessive investigator is that if occasionally your unreasonable obsessive hunch is spot on, then you're going to follow it at least the next time or maybe the time after that because you have positive confirmation that you are right to be obsessed. And so to me, that was a part of John that I could relate to and that I understood. I think it's just, he was on his own train. You know, Esther says she's on her train. He's on his train, and it's not so easy to get off of that. Yeah. So there are lots of podcasts, especially movies, books, um, in the genre of true crime, right? It's sort of a national pastime right now to follow some of these cases. There are different choices. You get kind of hooked on a narrative. I find that podcasts are an especially like engrossing way to enter these stories and become absorbed in them. Are there any ethical issues that arise in this area of reporting? Um, I mean, you're really digging into people's lives. These are things that happened a long time ago um, to real people. How do you think about that with a story like this? Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to ask yourself at some level what justifies doing this. Is it Because if the answer is strictly entertainment, uh, then I don't think you, you can do it. And so there were a few things that I grappled with. Um, one was I talked to this guy, Ben Ford, who is the chief of police, uh, the current chief of police down in Traveler's Rest, who is doing, uh, as far as I can tell, a very hard and earnest job of still trying to find out what happened to Brooke. And this is a weird thing. This is the only time this ever happened to me. I interviewed John Campbell. And or I was about I hadn't even interviewed John. I hadn't even gone to Traveler's Rest yet. And I got a message. Jake, this is Ben Ford of the Traveler's Rest Police Department. I would like to talk to you. And that was because he knew you were trying to get in touch with John Campbell? He or? got word that I might be doing a story related to Brooke Henson. I see. So I was like, this is weird. Like usually on an, any kind of active investigation with law enforcement, as you know, it's like they they generally very leery of the press. And so I called him and he said, Look. Um, I'm running an active investigation. If you can get the word out about the facts, about what we know and don't know, I'd be very appreciative. I will share with you whatever I've got. So that was encouraging to me because I felt like, oh, maybe there's a public service here. And then I got in touch with a woman that looked for missing people. And then she put me in touch with um, Brooke's cousins. And I just asked them straight up. I was like, is this something you're comfortable with? And they basically said, look, we still want to find her remains. We're hopeful that maybe this will help. And we're also just glad that she's not forgotten. And we had that conversation. And, and we revisited that in the fact-checking part. I ran back over all of this with, with, with every aspect of it with them. So, yeah, I was thinking a lot about that. And the second part, and we'll get to this, is Esther's treatment in the media and revisiting that. And I felt like there's a place where we can do a good hard look at the way this was played out 
and by taking a second look at it, there may be some good that served from this. So it was, it was as I was grappling with this, kind of looking at those other things and said, you know what, I think there is value here in, in kind of telling the story. Well, and some of this comes down again to timing, right? We were talking about that earlier, but when you have a cold case like this and a family that is still wants to know answers, interest from reporters, podcasters can be welcome in a way that it might well not have been in the moment, right? This isn't a news story anymore. It was a big news story. Yeah. So you're coming in at a different time. Yeah, you're, the, du- the dust has settled a bit. I mean, Esther's able to talk about this. I mean, there's good and bad from that. Um, the, ba- the hard part is that time has passed, so sometimes it's hard to get people to remember what they were thinking and feeling at the time. Another hard part is if they were burned by the media, they don't want to talk to you, and you have to spend a lot of time explaining this is not going to be a tabloid treatment of this. Um, but yeah, there, it's nice to be like talking to the Secret Service. I mean, I've tried to deal with the Secret Service before. The Secret Service never talks, in my experience. And I got Don Long, and basically his attitude was like, yeah, this is like years ago, I'll talk to you, you know? And um, so yeah, there were some definite benefits as well. How did the media cover Esther's disappearance once they knew she was missing? Well, you know, it's funny because when I first saw the media coverage that sh- this story got back in the day, I mean, you know how this is. You kind of think like this story has been reported out. Like I'm late to the party, right? And, and I, so, but then I started taking a look, a closer look at the way it was reported out. And it was basically like, you know, femme fatale. It was you know, very much not what you're hearing her say in the opening that she kind of embarked on this path in which she kind of was making incrementally bad decisions and as we learned in the podcast was dealing with mental health and all this, that, you know, she's portrayed as like almost like a Bond villain, you know, as someone who's seducing people, a kind of female version of Catch Me If You Can. In fact, that was the play on the the 48 Hours um, version of this. And so... The thinking is, okay, is there a way to re-examine? It doesn't mean you let her off the hook. It doesn't mean you give her a pass for the laws that she broke. But can you look at this and see maybe there's a more nuanced portrayal of, of a real human being here and not just a kind of cardboard cutout? We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences 
with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Welcome back. After we grab some drinks and mingle with the crowd, I turned the tables on Emily, asked her some questions. Because we do similar work. She often reports on criminal justice for the New York Times Magazine and finds her way into all kinds of interesting and convoluted true crime stories. And there's one in particular that I wanted to talk to her about, a story that Emily spent years reporting on. It involves a young woman named Nora Jackson. Nora was convicted as a teenager of killing her own mother. She spent several years in prison, and then one day her conviction was overturned. Emily became interested in how something like this happens and the role of the prosecutor, a woman named Amy Wyrick. Emily wrote about Nora's case for the New York Times Magazine. Her story also appeared in Emily's book, Charged. You should check them out. We've included links to both in our show notes. Okay, back to our conversation. I'm wondering whether, Emily, you can just kind of turn back the clock and help uh, remind me and us, how did you get drawn to this story? What did you know initially? And what made you think that this was a story you wanted to write? So you are a story person who starts with like a good sizzly concept of people who fake their ideas to go to college. I, uh, often to my detriment, am more of an ideas person. And I was interested several years ago in prosecutors who had a pattern of uh, breaking the rules in a way that um, harmed the people who they were charged with prosecuting. Um, Prosecutors obviously, you know, prosecute cases, but they're also supposed to be a kind of um, arbiter of justice in their own way. They represent the people. They also have responsibilities to um, uphold all the laws and rules in the justice system. And I was interested in the prosecutors who cut corners. So there was a prosecutor. I did a little research. I was like looking around the country um, for a kind of rogues gallery of prosecutors, frankly. And at the time, the district attorney in Memphis, which is Shelby County, her name was Amy Wyrick. And she had a real pattern of failing to disclose evidence in um, cases in which she'd gotten, you know, big convictions. And Nora Jackson's case, once I was like in that world, jumped out at me, um, you know, for some similar reasons to why you were interested in Esther. So when Nora was 18, her mother was brutally stabbed to death in her home. And her mother was a 40-year-old white stockbroker. So it was like an unusual um, murder and the kind of murder that is destabilizing to, um, you know, white middle-class residents. There was no obvious suspect. And about three months after the murder, um, Amy Wyrick charged Nora, the 18-year-old daughter, with her mother's killing. Uh, Nora didn't have a criminal history, but she was known as a kind of wild child. And um, the charges um, were brought, and there was a lot of publicity. And then a few months later, the DNA results came back from the crime scene. You know, her mother's blood was everywhere, so there was a lot of evidence to test. And in fact, Nora was excluded um, as someone who was part of that crime scene in any way, and there were other DNA profiles. However, 
Um, Weirich prosecuted her anyway. And for a variety of reasons, including what was later deemed misconduct on Weirich's part, Nora was convicted. Um, and then later, the Tennessee Supreme Court actually overturned her conviction. And I think we have a little clip of Nora talking about finding out about that ruling. Three years ago, in a woman's prison outside Memphis, Tennessee, Nora Jackson was sitting in her cell watching television on mute. You know, they have 3-1, 3-2, 3-3, and 3-2 is just like a repeat of the news and the weather. Her roommate was in the cafeteria, and Nora wanted to get some privacy. And I just was sitting there going to the bathroom and just like watching it, and I saw my name come across the bottom of the screen. And then I was like, oh, shit. So she turns on the volume. The Tennessee Supreme Court has granted Nora Jackson a new trial. And she just honestly, for a few minutes, couldn't believe it. Nora Jackson is now awaiting a new trial. And even though there's no... Nora had just won her appeal, something that rarely happens in the state of Tennessee. This is after she has spent nine years in prison. Emily Bazelon has been covering the case. And, like, nobody was there because everybody was at dinner. So I'm, like, screaming to get out because I'm, like, wanting to get to the phone and nobody's there. It must have been something good to eat that night. And why was Nora in prison in the first place? Nora was in prison because she was convicted of murdering her mother, Jennifer Jackson. Wow. That's an episode of The Daily, and that was, I think, Mike Barbaro. Somehow, like, sounds different now to me. Um, anyway, uh, so, go ahead. I want to ask you a question as you're telling the story. So, she charges, Amy Ryrick charges Nora with the murder of her mother, and then you said some period of time later, it comes out that the DNA was excluded. So, what is the sequence of events? Does she have that, that DNA evidence when she makes the charge? No, Weirich didn't have the DNA results from the crime lab. You might wonder why she didn't wait for them to come back. She yes, didn't. I am wondering. Yes, she didn't. But they were available. They were part of the record. They were part of the evidence that the jury heard. And the jury convicted Nora anyway. Um, and I think there are a few explanations for that. One was the kind of failed strategy of her defense lawyer. And that didn't go very well. And also the judge in the case admitted people saying all kinds of stuff about Nora. Um, like, for example, um, that, you know, her boyfriend had crawled in the window, just, you know, one night to have sex with her a couple months after her mother was killed. Just all of this irrelevant, but kind of scurrilous character assassination evidence. And perhaps that had an effect on the jury. Uh, as you're talking about uh, the charges being placed before the DNA evidence comes back, it almost makes me think of a version of the media getting out in front of the story. That You have an idea that this is who this person is, they've done this, and then what happens when you find evidence that might or ought to give you pause about the theories that you've postulated prior to having that evidence? Yeah, I mean, you know, one way to think about this is tunnel vision for prosecutors that once they've chosen someone, there's a lot of um, impetus, confirmation bias, professional reasons to kind of stick with that person as the suspect. Um, and that is, in fact, what happened to Nora. So after the Tennessee Supreme Court overturned her conviction, she had a kind of second round of like a prolonged kind of face-off with Amy Weirich because Weirich was threatening to prosecute her again. 
and um, in order to get a plea bargain. And Nora ended up accepting a plea bargain to manslaughter because she thought she was going to get out of prison. But then it turned out that her lawyers had made a mistake in calculating her time and that she actually had to remain in prison for 14 months. Um, so that was completely horrible because, um, first of all, she had, she'd already been in prison, I think, at that point for nine years. Um, and also it was socially for her really horrible. Her world were people in prison who saw her as kind of heroic for standing up to Amy Wyrick. You know, all these women in prison, so rare to have your, especially in Tennessee, to have your sentence, your conviction overturned. But then she had taken this plea. She'd kind of given in in their eyes and she was back among them. So she hadn't even gotten what she thought she was going to get. So that happened to be the point when I kind of stumbled on this story. Hmm. And I wrote Nora a letter in prison. Um, I wrote her a bunch of letters. Uh, and she wrote back to me a couple times, but I wasn't really sure whether she wanted to talk to me. And it actually took me 10 months to persuade her to meet with me. How did you do that? I called her on the phone um, and talked to her a couple times. It was very in and out. Like, she was responsive, then she wasn't. I, and she had all kinds of reasons to mistrust the media because by then mm. she'd been the subject of, I think, a 2020 special or maybe 48 hours. I think both. And neither of them had been helpful to her at all. And in both cases, uh, she had kind of been led along, or she said she felt like she'd been misled and then it turned into a kind of tabloid, you know, very uh, whodunit, and, and kind of implicating her. I mean, in these situations, there's always, I always feel like an unspoken kind of agreement that's made. Like, you have your interest, which is writing the story, and she has her own set of interests of why she ultimately decides she wants to speak with you. She's hoping that, that your story will do something for her. What do you think that she hoped your story would do, and did you feel that your story would, in fact, do that? Well, when I first went to see her in prison, and actually I went to Memphis and then she almost decided not to see me, but then she changed her mind at the last minute, luckily. And we sat down in this little classroom at, um, she, at that point she was at the jail. And what she really wanted to tell me about were the um, black women she was in prison with and how much worse off they were and how much, how strange she felt about the attention she was getting hmm given that there were these people around her she thought deserved um, attention. So it was that same feeling of like, oh my God, there are all these cases. Why am I focusing on this one particular person and not these other people? And I was, she was very um, firm and uh, clear that other people were more deserving of, um, of being interviewed and that she felt that there was something wrong about that. And so even though it, it only drew, drew her to me, drew me to her more, I didn't change course. There was something sort of impressive about that because she might have wanted to keep the attention for herself. Um, and I, for a long time, I think she was very ambivalent. Uh, it really wasn't until she had been released, until I had really been pursuing her for a couple of years that she started trusting me, which I totally understand. Um, I think that eventually the idea that it was the New York Times that was interested, that I was going to be able to tell her story in a way that really got across the legal complexity and the wrongdoing on the part of the prosecution, I think that 
she cared about that. And Amy Wyrick was not interested in talking to me, was, you know, obviously very clearly resistant to my doing the story. And that also, I think, kind of endeared me to Nora because she could see it was sort of like I was um, it was like a different kind of press was coming in. And she appreciated that eventually. You you had asked me why I, I thought that John Campbell was so vehemently interested, obsessed with this case that was driving this. So I'm going to flip the question on you. Why did Amy Wyrick double down on this case and give so much attention to it? What was, as best as you could tell, what was her motivation? Well, Wyrick tried this case when she was a prosecutor working for the elected district attorney in Shelby County, and it made her famous. She was on TV news. She was this um, young woman being this very strong, um, in her eyes, uh, advocate for justice, um, you know, standing in the place of Nora's mother and um, convicting someone. And it was, it's very, very unusual for children to actually kill their parents and especially for daughters to kill their mothers. But for Wyrick, that was only kind of part of the way of um, talking about the case that she was, despite all of those um, obstacles, that she was doing it anyway because this was justice. She was really, that was her line. And she wound up being elected district attorney in Shelby County in 2014. Um, And I think that Nora's case really catapulted her into the kind of front of the community in a way that was politically helpful to her. It seems that the evidence against Nora was extremely circumstantial, um, but I'm wondering, did you ever have any moments of doubt about her innocence? Yeah, I decided that I didn't have to know whether she was innocent or not. And Mm. I kind of set that aside. I mean, Nora would hate that um, if she were here because it's so deeply important to her to be believed. And I completely understand that. Uh, But I just decided there was so much wrong with this case, legally speaking, that it it was okay. That I, I was not standing there arguing for her innocence as her lawyer, even as a journalist, I was just telling you the story of what had happened to her. And my story in the magazine is really about prosecutors hiding evidence. Hmm. Um, And I think that really was sort of how the story unfolded in my book as well. Tell us about where Nora is now. I mean, give us the quick update. So for a while, Nora was living in Brooklyn. She got out of prison in 2016. And she was actually in Brooklyn for a while, but now she is back in Memphis. Um... She's, you know, she, it's, it's hard. It's really hard to get out of prison after you've been there for a while. You kind of have to really restart your life. Uh, often people have a kind of prolonged form of PTSD um, that they're figuring out just how to live in the real world again. And Nora has no family. So in addition to the death of her mother, um, her parents were divorced, but her father had actually been murdered a year and a half before her mother was killed, which is like another, I know... Really, and perhaps that was connected, and maybe that's the kind of missing element of the unsolved murders all along. But um, she really didn't have family, and so um, that has been really hard for her to be, you know, she got out of prison in her late 20s, mid to late 20s, and she had kind of grown up in prison, and in some ways that meant that she didn't quite grow up. Um, So now she's in Memphis, and... um, She had a lawyer, not the trial lawyer I was talking about earlier, but a later lawyer 
who is just a kind of um, incredibly caring person. And so right now she is actually working for him in Memphis um, and, you know, and uh, getting on her feet, trying to get her own place. Um, She also has a dog uh, named Liberty, very deliberate name, um, who I'm very fond of. I actually took care of Liberty for a little while, long after my book came out, just to be clear. Uh, and so I just went to Memphis to see, I was there to work on a different story, but of course I wanted to see Nora. And my big question was whether Liberty was going to remember me, um, which she did, which is great. One thing I will say to you, Emily, is that there are many journalists who interview people, hear their story, and they never call them back or hear from them again. And I, I don't know of another journalist who's more committed to treating people as human beings not just for the week or day, but for years often afterwards. Um, and it's, it's a rare thing. Thank you. Um, should we take some listener questions? Absolutely. After the break, we talk more about Deep Cover, Never Seen Again, and I answer a few questions from the audience. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, N.A. member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. We're back. Next up, we took questions from listeners in the audience. We had them write their questions out on paper and then put them in a bucket. Yes, very old school, I know. It was like seventh grade, everyone passing notes. Then someone handed the bucket to Emily, and she read them aloud. Is there anything you wanted to include in the podcast that didn't make the cut? Yeah, I mean, there was a, lo- there was a lot, probably. There, when I went down to Traveler's Rest, I mean, when I went down to Traveler's Rest, before I connected with Brooke's cousins, I connected with this husband and wife team, Patrick and Tammy Welch. And I I didn't end up getting to put them in the podcast and I still feel badly about that. Because what they do is they basically devote all their spare time to try to look 
for people who have gone missing, people that have kind of gone off the radar of, of law enforcement and actively kind of keep the search alive. And th the first thing they told me straight up was like, look, it's great you're doing this on Brook, but there's actually a ton of people that are missing in this area. And um, they were they had like a map in their house with all the pinpoints of the people and where they went missing. And it wasn't like they were all connected and this was some conspiracy. It was just, they were like the custodians of these people's memory. And then they drove with me up to the dark corner where Brooke may have gone missing. And uh, the whole thing was so intense for Tammy. She didn't want to go, but she reluctantly went with us in the pickup truck. And it, it was it was one of these scenes where it was kind of late at night and we were driving down some shadowy roads in the mountains. And I just got a sense for like, this is how these people spent their weekends. And it just made you think about all the stories we can't tell. And I kind of get to this at the end that we often fixate on very particular types of stories that kind of play into the femme fatale or that have some sort of Hollywood appeal, but there's all these kind of nameless cases of people that go missing and there was just something really poignant and powerful about this couple in their pickup truck kind of winding their way down the darkened roads of this county, kind of going to the last spots where these people were. Um, and they're doing great work, and I hope that they hear a shout-out for that in, in this bonus episode. Um, another listener question. One of Esther's lies was that she was a professional chess player. So did anyone ever ask Esther to play chess that ever threatened to blow her cover? I know. I, Such a crazy thing to make up. The, the, I get, you know, she was a, apparently a pretty solid chess player because you know from the podcast what happens <laughs> when she says, I'm a tennis player. And then she's like, oh, shit, I don't actually know how to play tennis. Um, I did talk to one former boyfriend who didn't go on the record, but he did play her in chess. He did ask her. She did beat him. Um, you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we were talking about this backstage a second ago. Like, I would be intimidated if I met, a, if you just said, I'm a professional chess player, there's no way in hell I wouldn't even play checkers with you. Um, so I suspect that scared off enough people um, that she could pull it off. Um, yeah. How do you think Esther's case would have been handled differently today? Well, we kind of we kind of talked about this a little bit. The way that I my mind goes to the media, and I just think that uh, I would hope that I would hope that the that we wouldn't just kind of immediately look when you have a story as a journalist, right? When someone brings you a story, and you're operating on impartial information, right? Your brain spins out. There's vast terra incognita. And we, when we go on our runs, oh, I think I, ha I talked to this woman, Esther, and she might have done that. Well, you asked me a question. I don't know. But I have an idea of where the story may be. But that story that I have that I'm projecting out into terra incognita is actually probably based on books I've read and crappy movies I've watched and local news stories I've read and, it, and is prompting me to make assumptions about who that person is and how the story is, in fact, going to play out based on like probably templates, like the femme fatale template. So what happens is you get like partway into the reporting and inevitably you start getting facts that challenge the assumptions that you've made in the template. And our mutual friend Jack Hitt always says, and I think this is so wise, he says as soon as a story turns out not being what you thought it was, 
that's when your story begins. But there's dissonance there because you're like, oh shit, this isn't the story I thought I'd be. And I told my editor and my producer it was going to be this, and I, I promised that. And now you have to go back and say it's not quite that. And I think that sometimes it's easier when you get to that point to just say, well, it's basically right. I mean, she did have three boyfriends in one year, and they were at military institutes, so she did kind of go through them. And you could see how if you just keep pushing and sticking to the preconception you have, you could just plow down that road. And I say that with empathy because I feel like as a journalist, I've stared down that and probably done some version of that. I would think in this moment now where there's more awareness of the way, you know, we, de we depict, among other people, women uh, in, in the news and, and such that someone would say, hey, wait a minute here, is this story that we're progressing on, does it all check out? Are we making assumptions? Are we playing into stereotypes and templates that may not be 100% justified? That's why I would hope it would play out differently today. Yeah, I mean, some of this is... It just really depends on Esther's honesty. I mean, I think that that was a really, I'm going to use the word lucky. Maybe that's not right. But somewhere in the alchemy of your interviewing her and her reflecting, there's some like pretty gritty candor that comes across, right? I think. True. And I would also say that like in fairness to people that were reporting her on back then, like let's be honest, this was a person who had a history of not being candid when she was younger, now is a different story. She's a professor. It's a different life. But at the time, this is someone who had been a serial identity thief, who had told people that she was a chess champion when she was, in fact, not, who had told lies to her, her boyfriends, etc. And so I think that's the really tricky part about telling a story with an unreliable narrator is that you must be skeptical. You must be dubious. You can't let them off the hook. But that doesn't give you that blank check to project whatever you want upon them. And so, yeah, it's easy for me to say that now, 20 years later, looking back, but... But so. you've learned a thing or two. Okay, speaking of compulsive liars, what about, who am I going to say, George Santos? Do you have a better understanding of what motivates people like him? I think George is his own special creature. We can probably all agree on that. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, is the short answer. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't presume to know what's going on with that guy. I do, I do, I think that, I think with Esther, I did, I did kind of understand it. Like, um, I don't know that Esther agreed with my assessment of it, but I feel like to some extent, we grew up in a certain town with certain friends and family, and we go away to college, we move to a different place, and we enjoy being someone different in small ways, and that doesn't mean that we always lie about it, but I think that sometimes it's born from this desire to remove ourselves from a place where we were. And I think that what happened in, in Esther's story in particular is that the law enforcement looked at it as there must be some sort of kind of deeper, more methodical, devious play here of espionage or something. And to me, it like just spoke to a more human impulse to just have space and reinvent. And that is not, again, to excuse it or to say that it's all right, but to try to understand it as a kind of basic human desire that just kind of, as she says, ran out of control in her case. So yeah, in some ways the answer is yes, but with Santos, I don't know. It's in his own category. 
Um, what led to the media thinking Esther was a potential spy when the story broke? Yeah, so, I mean, it starts off, I was talking to um, a listener in the audience during the intermission, and we were kind of on the same page. It, it's, it started off with uh, kind of John Campbell trying to come up with an expo. It didn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense. Why do you enroll at college as a different name, um, and there's no obvious gain to be made for it? And so in the absence of that knowledge, starts putting together other possible theories. Oh, she's dated two guys from West Point and midshipmen, maybe it's this. I mean, in some ways, that's what detectives are supposed to do. They're supposed to speculate. But what happened was, for those of you that, li- that listened know, is that when they were trying to get the word out about the case, the police chief and travelers rest of the time told John, he should o- the detective, he should open the file and feel free to talk to the press. And that's when John started to air some of his theories about espionage. And there was a local news station that ran some of them. And then there was um, a kind of middleman whose job it was was to find interesting local stories and sell them to the national media. And he quickly wrote up a press release based on this impartial information. And three days later, it was running nationally. And so the story just kind of got a bit ahead of itself. Um, and, but that's how, that, I mean, that's what we do in episode four. We kind of br- connect the dots of this pipeline of how it comes from kind of, you know, speculation to kind of headlines. Yeah. So, um, new question. Part of the story is themed around tough mental health challenges and also running away. What advice do you think Esther might give to someone in a similar situation? You know, this is, it's interesting because when we first started talking to Esther, uh, I'm not sure how exactly I posed it, but sometimes I'll often say, this is a version of like what I was asking you before about Nora, like, what do you want out of the story? Because uh, it's just, you don't always get an honest answer, but it's helpful. Sometimes you do. And she said, look, um, I was suffering from real mental health issues. And um, I think that I felt, and I made some bad choices. And if I had had someone to talk to, um, oh, I could have been honest about what was going on and I had been gotten some help earlier, I might have made some, some, better, some better choices. And so I think that she looks at this as a situation of what happens to kind of anxiety and desperation and she has social anxiety when it's kind of unchecked and left, left to kind of spiral with no help. And so to me, I think that was a large part of the motivation of her, of her, um, of her talking Um to uh, 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 about the story, um, and she's now currently. It's interesting I, um, that this is her, her big thing: is like advocating for mental health, kind of preemptively before people go off the rails and end up in uh, incarcerated. You know, one thing that strikes me about Esther and Nora is that they had really strange things happen to them that they participated in, but mm-hmm. that like also are just hard to explain. And I think there is something about having someone just lay out your story clearly. Um, Nora sometimes says that she just like feels like she can just take the magazine and hand it to people just as an explanation of mm. what happened. Mm. Um, anyway, I wonder if that's something that's helpful to Esther. And I mean, probably is, right? I think so. I mean, I didn't, you know, we did this very intense session with her when, before it came out, where we went back over it with her. I read back what other people said about her and I read back what I said to her. And it was, it was hot. I mean, it was intense. She was not happy with some parts of it, but I think that that even that pro, even that conversation 
was a conversation that she hadn't had in any of the previous uh, media treatments of it. And so I think that there was, when we talked to her a few days later, she's like, I appreciate that we had at least the chance to, to do that. And she was, but it's awkward. I could see why a lot of people don't want to do it because it wasn't fun. It is uh, not fun. You know. Last question. Yeah. It's kind of related to what we're talking about. How do you recognize your past experiences and traumas while covering a story and work to keep them from influencing your interpretation and telling of the story? Wow. Well, I mean, I'll start by saying that I don't think I've had anything as traumatic happen to me as Esther had with, I mean, the loss of her mother at that age. And if you've listened to the podcast, you know how her parents how her parents divorced and she was struggling. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I did say to her at times, like, look, I, I get it. I, I, I didn't say I get it. I said, I, I, I'm sympathetic because I, I have had anxiety before, but I don't think I've had it like you. And so I think that it's actually important not to assume that you've had their experience because that's the problem. Like it, it, you know, if I start to let myself think that like, oh, I've had anxiety too and I didn't make up X number of identities, then I'm not on some level getting it. So I think that it's, I think that you have to, the starting point almost has to be that I'm not seeing this the way you see it, but like try to help me see it. Right. I mean, I think you're talking about empathy and one and recognizing the limits of empathy in terms of pretending to stand in someone's shoes. Um, yeah. Right. I mean, empathy is a tool for journalists like us, but I think we also have to be really careful in how we handle it. Um, totally. I mean, I think that's why it's important. You've got to talk to the other family members. And there's many things that weren't included in this podcast. Things that, like in some ways, the most, you could say, some of the most significant things that, that are part of a story are the things that are actually not included because you've debated ad nauseum about whether or not to include them. And they would be interesting, um, but you feel you can't include them. Um, so, yeah. I feel like every twist and turn is like some sort of dilemma in which, you know, and you're getting back on Twitter, oh, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. And it's like, yeah. You're and all I had a reason for it. Yeah, I you're, it you're all right, you know. And <laughs> we're tried, like, we, we told one version of the truth the version of the truth as best we could see it. And that's why the team of people, the four of us sat down and went through this, understanding damn well that there's no entirely objective way to tell a story. And you want to tell it as compellingly as you possibly can so that we have the clicks that justify season four. <laughs> and yet, at the same time, y- you know that you're telling just one version of the truth. And you're going to get it from one side to the other. And as my wife says to me, it just has to be a version of the truth that you can live with, even if no one else likes, which is really hard to do. But that's the goal, I think. Yes. I feel like I have heard that line from Kasha a number of times from you. And it's like in my head, too, which I really appreciate because Kasha is very wise. Um, Jake, this has been so much fun. I am really looking forward to season four. Um, Thank you so much. And congratulations. Thanks for listening to this special live episode of Deep Cover. I want to express my heartfelt thanks to Emily for a great conversation. We'll have another episode coming out next month. I'll be talking with Ben Ford, the current chief of police in Traveler's Rest, all about Brooke Henson and the continued search for closure in that case.
And I have a favor to ask. It'll only take you about two minutes, I promise. If you like Deep Cover, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other people find the show. It gets the word out. And it helps us make the case that, yes, there should be a season four and beyond. Thank you. Deep Cover is produced by Amy Gaines and Jacob Smith. This episode was edited by Sophie Crane. Mastering by Sarah Bruguer. Our show art was designed by Sean Carney. Original scoring and our theme was composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to Nicole Morano, Jason Gambrell, Mia Lobel, Greta Cohn, Jacob Weisberg, and Karen Shakurji. I'm Jake Halpern. I want to remind you that when you sign up for Pushkin Plus, you'll get access to binge drops of future seasons of Deep Cover and exclusive content from other Pushkin true crime hits. Check out pushkin.fm or the Apple show page for more information. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.